Hey everybody, you are listening to The Poison Lab, and I have an episode I'm really excited to share with you. Something I think everyone in the talks community is really going to find valuable, especially if you've had a busy schedule lately. If you didn't have a chance to peruse the 312 published research abstracts from some of the best and brightest in the field of clinical toxicology that was presented at the 2022 North American Congress of Clinical Toxicology in San Francisco, or even if you did, Come along with us on this episode. Myself and a special expert panel are going to do a high-yield review of some of the most clinically impactful abstracts that were published at the conference this year. We're going to be joined by Dr. Grant Comstock and Dr. Dan McCabe, both emergency medicine physicians and medical toxicologists with fantastic training and expertise, as well as Dr. Natalia Farrell, an emergency medicine PharmD and ABAT clinical toxicologist like myself, who's got a wealth of experience. They're going to be helping me break down the clinical implications of 15 very important abstracts that were presented this year. We'll be talking about the paradigm shift in calcium channel blocker toxicity with increasing amlodipine overdoses and their generally unique shock states that can be predominantly vasoplegic in the data that discusses how the clinical care for these patients are different. We'll be discussing clinical outcomes in patients who are identified to have xylazine in their system during overdose as well as a number of other important topics, like new limitations in our brain death testing. If you want to see all the abstracts we're going to discuss, check out the show notes where they're all listed within their individual categories. In total, we'll cover 15 important or interesting research abstracts. So I hope you can tune in. For longtime listeners of the show, you might notice that Toxo's voice has changed a little bit. Don't worry, there'll be more to come on that. But I don't think it'll be too distracting for you. Finally, before we jump in, I wanted to say thank you to all of the hardworking authors who designed intelligent protocols, abstracted data, and worked hard to discover things in the field of toxicology. We did our best throughout the show to give credit to the authors of the abstract, but we are but flawed humans. Everyone worked hard on this, so I'm sorry if we missed your name. I really encourage everyone to check out the PDF all of the published NACCT research abstracts that's listed in the show notes, so you can see every person who is involved in making this research possible. Okay, we've got a lot of ground to cover today. Let's dive in. Hey, everybody, you are listening to The Poison Lab, a show about poisoning for people who manage poisoning. I'm your host, clinical toxicologist and emergency medicine pharmacist, Ryan, and I have a really fun and exciting episode today, one that I think a lot of people are going to find valuable. If you didn't have time to cruise through the 312 published abstracts from the North American Congress of Clinical Toxicology, well, we have a special episode for you, because in this episode, we're going to review some of the most meaningful research that was presented this year by the best and brightest in toxicology at the North American Congress of Clinical Toxicology. So I have sort of handpicked my favorite abstracts that I read at NACCT this year, ones that I thought had the highest clinical implications to the things that I see day to day. And I have invited a expert panel to come in and discuss the implications of this research. So we have three really great special guests with us today, and I'm going to let them introduce themselves, their background, and where they're practicing now. 
Dr. Comstock, would you like to start? Yeah, happy to. Um, yeah, so my name is Grant Comstock. I completed my residency in emergency medicine uh, at the Denver Health and then uh, did a fellowship in medical toxicology at the Rocky Mountain Poison um, and Drug Safety Fellowship. I uh, finished that last year and I'm now new faculty in emergency medicine and medical toxicology with Ryan um, at uh, MCW in Wisconsin. I'm happy to be here. And Dr. McCabe, would you like to go next? Absolutely. Thanks, Ryan. My name is Dan McCabe. I'm an emergency physician and medical toxicologist at the University of Iowa. I trained in emergency medicine at Cook County in Chicago and then did my fellowship of medical toxicology up in Minnesota. And now I am the director of the division of medical toxicology at the University of Iowa and the associate medical director of the Poison Center, in addition to working in the emergency department. And for any of our listeners with a keen ear, uh, that would be the same Dr. McCabe from our episode 16 regarding Fennybutt that we discussed, and he has graciously agreed to join our show today. So thank you, Dr. McCabe. And last but not least, uh, a guest I'm very excited to have on the show, uh, Dr. Natalia farrell Farndy. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Uh, my name is Natalia Farrell. I am a clinical toxicologist and emergency medicine pharmacist at Boston Medical Center. I did my PGY-1, PGY-2 emergency medicine pharmacy residency training at Boston Medical Center. Afterwards, I completed a clinical toxicology fellowship at the Georgia Poison Center. Um, I've been a board-certified toxicologist for almost uh, eight years now and uh, have practiced at Rhode Island Hospital and Boston Medical Center uh, during that time. Thank you all so much for joining today. We're going to be reviewing approximately... 15, hopefully if we have time, maybe up to 17, of the abstracts uh, that were published and presented at the North American Congress of Clinical Toxicology in San Francisco, California in 2022. So this is about the top 5 to 6% of abstracts. So this will hopefully be a high-yield review of some of the more interesting research that was presented this year. Disclaimer, There might have been some research that was very relevant to you that wasn't relevant to me. So I won't argue, I won't say that this is entirely comprehensive. I did leave out a fair amount of snake bite literature. I know there's a hot debate amongst Anavip and Crofab out there in the world right now. Uh, And it is very interesting, but we're not touching so much on the envenomation. So these are more things that I know I routinely run into, and I think they they kind of change practice. So the large groups of abstracts we're going to be talking about today, there's four main categories. And here's Toxa with a breakdown of what those are. Category 1, amlodipine vasoplegia. Category 2, xylazine. Category 3, case reports with terrifying clinical implications. And category 4, comparative evidence, prognostication, and triage. And you're here for a high-yield episode, so we'll cut the chit-chat. Without further ado... Category 1. Amlodipine vasoplegia. Abstract 1. Vasodilation in patients with calcium channel blocker poisoning treated with high-dose insulin. A comparison of amlodipine versus non-dihydropyridines. This one is from our Minnesota Poison Center and, and a Minnesota toxicology group, John Cole, Sam Lee, Nate Kunzler, and Travis Olives. This was a two-year retrospective study of high-dose insulin and calcium channel blocker poisoning at a single poison center. The team hypothesized that amlodipine treated with high-dose insulin had more vasodilation compared to verapamil or deltiazem. They had 
18 patients with amlodipine and 15 with verapamil or deltiazem, and they compared the total amount of vasopressors and high-dose insulin that was needed. What they found was the median infusion rate for the amlodipine group was 10 units per kilo per hour compared to 5 units per kilo per hour for the verapamil or deltiazem group. Use of rescue methylene blue was more common in the amlodipine group than in the non-dihydropyridine group, and epinephrine dosing was higher in the amlodipine group compared to non-dihydropyridines. So it appeared that you needed higher doses of high-dose insulin, higher doses of vasopressors, and more rescue agents when looking at amlodipine versus verapamil or adultiazem. Does any of this surprise you guys? What, what do you make of this? This study is, is super fascinating and bringing, I think, a lot of uh, very important attention to amlodipine toxicity. The thing that stands out to me is in that top line where you look at the rate, the, the, the high-dose insulin infusion rates were double for the amlodipine as opposed to the non-dihydropyridines. And that, I mean, mechanistically is, is kind of a fascinating finding because it's so profoundly vasodilatory amlodipine. Then you think about uh, insulin, it's, a, it's really an inodilator. And so mechanistically, you can look at that and say, you know, is this really a, um, a preferred agent in this setting? And, and to see double the rates of insulin for amlodipine as compared to the non-dihydropyridines, where mechanistically that makes a ton of sense, that, that really is a standout finding to me. And I wonder how that impacts, you know, the kind of downstream manifestations of needing more methylene blue or needing higher doses of your vasopressors and things to that effect. And so one of the, the takeaways I get from this is, um, you know, kind of looking at really the interplay between high-dose insulin and the dihydropyridine uh, calcium channel blockers and saying, it, it, is this an agent that has a role? Um, and if it has a role, kind of where in, in your own kind of um, medical algorithm does it sit? And I'll say, personally, um, I, don't, I don't consider insulin until I've got a probe on the chest um, and a consideration of, of kind of naming that shock. Am I going to call this cardiogenic shock or am I going to call it vasoplegic shock? And if it's, if it's seeming like the EF is grossly normal or, or hyperdynamic, I, I'm not, per, again, personally, of course, there's, there's a lot of room for, for conversation in this. But I don't, I don't reach for insulin. I'm reaching for vasopressors in that scenario. And so I, I think this really is going to bring a, a lot of attention and um, probably some very, uh, some, good, some good discussion, probably some good science as to kind of exactly what that role is for insulin in the, in the world of amlodipine toxicity. Agents like amlodipine get forgotten about a little bit or think it's not as bad as diltiazem or rapamil. But mechanistically, amlodipine has a greater vasodilation, um, and it also may release uh, like nitric oxide. Um, so it makes sense that high-dose insulin would be less efficacious and that we may use adjunct therapies like methylene blue a little bit more, more frequently than with diltiazem and verapamil. I think that was beautifully put. For so long, we've lumped together calcium channel blockers as a single toxin. But truly, we have two different potential presentations, you have the non-dihydropyridines, which are both cardiac poisons and they cause vasodilation. And then you have amlodipine or the dihydropyridines, which will cause vasodilatory shock and not always a cardiogenic shock. And how do we decide what dose of high-dose insulin you need? Well, you start it and if they're not getting better, you increase the dose. And since we know that high-dose insulin from this same group, Cole and colleagues, in 2013, they did a study on propranolol-poisoned pigs and demonstrated beautifully that high-dose insulin, as you increase your dose, it lowers systemic vascular resistance and it increases cardiac output. In amlodipine, 
you might already have a low systemic vascular resistance, high output state, or you could have a low cardiac output, low systemic vascular resistance state. So I think this brings to light, we probably need to do a more patient-specific assessment of the shock phenotype before jumping to high-dose insulin, because the high-dose insulin, at least based off this, dialing up these doses and needing more of these refractory agents, it, it might not always be the right choice for specifically amlodipine. Agreed. And in truth, everything we're saying here uh, is in line with what the recently published adult calcium channel blocker evidence-based guidelines recommend. They actually say right in there, now only reach for high-dose insulin if there's evidence of myocardial dysfunction. But then as a lower-grade recommendation in there, it says, well, if everything else isn't working, you could consider trying it, uh, even if there isn't myocardial cardio dysfunction. So it is kind of, it feels like we're trying to get away from just broadly using it, but it's only a recent development. And I think that's not something that we were as a tox community doing a great job of differentiating. Yeah. And the, I feel like we need to also point out a little bit that this group, uh, very intelligent researchers and clinicians, they also published in 2018 in American Journal of Emergency Medicine how they've been implementing it as a poison center, uh, safely high-dose insulin. And this is their poison center recommendations when, the, when they're uh, implementing high-dose insulin. Um, but they recommend titrating to improvement of shock. And as people have already alluded to multiple times already, the differentiation of what type of shock becomes very important. Not, not all shock states are, are the same. And um, and I feel like this, this abstract that they're putting out in the subsequent papers will probably change a lot of our practice to even push us more towards doing the probe like Grant said. Abstract 2. Amlodipine anxiety, a 10-year review of amlodipine-associated fatalities. So it looks like this is a paper from Chicago, Dr. Bush and Dr. Bryant. Uh, for the population, they had a 10-year regional uh, Illinois Poison Center review of amlodipines uh, fatalities, um, and they were looking you know, at single-agent and multi-agent exposures. Their outcomes that they found were a dramatic shift in the overdoses uh, starting in 2018, and it was implicated in more deaths at their poison center than all other calcium channel blockers together. And so they had a total of 37 deaths. 98% of which required or received vasopressors, 80% got high-dose insulin, 35% interestingly got intralipid, uh, less than 10% got methylene blue, and then all of them did not receive ECMO. Okay, yeah, so I kind of chose this one for two reasons. Number one, amlodipine is far and away, probably just due to its prevalence in the community, one of the most common calcium channel blocker overdoses. And so we're seeing it way more. And here in this center, they said, you know, amlodipine is the calcium channel blocker overdose causing the most deaths in their state. And it's just a great segue. So we just kind of talked about, okay, amlodipine, often a vasoplegic shock. Well, we have our therapies. Uh, we use pressors, high-dose insulin. You know, it's definitely being used. But what do you do when all of that is failing? You know, oftentimes ECMO gets thought of. And the traditional role for ECMO is cardiogenic shock. It increases blood flow, right? You're, 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 you program it to a flow rate. We know blood pressure is equal to our, you know, the shear force between our cardiac output and our systemic vascular resistance. ECMO doesn't increase your systemic vascular resistance. And these patients are in a SVR depleted shock. So it is kind of confusing to me. It, it almost seems like or ECMO wouldn't be warranted in, in an amlodipine overdose if it's not cardiogenic, but it does happen a lot. I mean, sometimes we'll get a call at the poison center about a patient who's already cannulated 
for ECMO from an amlodipine overdose, sometimes before they've even gotten near high doses of vasopressors. And I, I don't know that I always agree that it's the right therapy for that shock, because just like we're talking about, it doesn't really make sense in my you know simple mental model of the physiologic basis of this shock. And despite it not making a lot of sense, when I look at this study, I see all these patients got high-dose insulin, vasopressors, all these other things, but they all died and none of them got ECMO. It just raises a question to me. Would they have done better with ECMO? It's, I, this is kind of one of those conundrums for me. I agree with that word conundrum because I'm not sure what to do with it. Uh, it's interesting data, but I would like to know what is percentage of patients got amlodipine toxic that didn't die and how many patients were amlodipine toxic that got ECMO. Um, and also the reality of the world that we all practice in is the vast majority of patients aren't on ECMO, aren't at ECMO centers anyway. And are they stable enough to be transferred someplace else? Um, so I feel like this is a good, a good, um, a good starting point to other conversations. Um, and just don't really know how this changes my conundrum of them and loaded pain toxicity. I would also offer that I'm not hundred percent sure where to move forward with this. I guess a question, <clears throat> Ryan, I'm, I'm reviewing um, the notes from the abstract and a question that crosses my mind is, are there data in regard to amlodipine toxic patients who got ECMO and did well, or is this just a look at those who died and, and a, a commentary that none of them received ECMO? They did not report out on, and this is what we need to look at, what are the outcomes in patients who have amlodipine overdoses and get ECMO? What is the rate of of, of survival in that scenario. And I guess I'll just point out, I don't think the authors were trying to assess the utility of ECMO in amlodipine overdose. It was just a piece of information that was in there. And sometimes when I read through other studies, despite what their hypothesis is, I, I see interesting data that seems relevant. And that's kind of why I brought this up. This isn't a study designed to look at the comparative efficacy of ECMO. Right. And I think kind of just what's unique here is as a group, we're kind of starting to emerge with the fact that, yes, there's different phenotypes of shock with this drug class overdose. You can have vasoplegic or cardiogenic. Do they need to be managed differently? In theory, vasoplegic would be managed differently. I think I brought this up because I'm just touching on really what is the role of ECMO in vasoplegic shocks? And I, I don't know what to do with this study, but the next one in our group kind of helps us answer that question. Abstract 3. Extracorporeal membrane oxygenation utilization for vasoplegic shock due to pediatric toxic ingestions. Uh, so this was a retrospective case review of the institutional ECMO database for pediatric patients who received VA ECMO for vasoplegic shock uh, related to poisonings. Shock was defined as hypotension requiring vasopressor support with the absence of significant myocardial dysfunction. 10 patients received uh, VA ECMO support. The overall survival rate was 80%. However, there was a 50% complication rate with five patients uh, having complications in total, three of them being strokes, one cannula dislodgement, and one patient had an upper GI bleed and compartment syndrome. So, there was an 80% survival rate, but a high complication rate at 50%. So the role of ECMO in vasoplegic shock uh, without respiratory failure is still not clear. 
it may also pose additional risks to the patient. For me, this does not answer the question. And if anything provides negative data, when we say vasoplegic shock and having a survival rate of 80%, so A, it's hard to know what we mean by vasoplegic shock. What are my pressure requirements? Uh, what is my toxin of interest? How ill is that patient? And if this is, I've got multiple patients on you know, limb ischemia inducing large doses of vasopressors, and granted, you shouldn't have that in vasoplegic shock, but uh, if you've got really just massive doses and, and these patients are absolutely refractory, then, then sure, that's a, that's a population where you expect a poor survival rate, but I would wager that we deal with a lot of shock and toxicology and some degree of vasoplegic shock or, or otherwise in our survival rate is probably, I, and this, is, this is a super broad strokes comment and maybe not found in enough evidence, but I, 80% doesn't sound like that amazing of a survival rate to me where I'm looking at, wow, what an amazing intervention. And then I see these complications and I think these are, these are catastrophic, a stroke in a pediatric patient, a compartment syndrome, the tube dislodgement, all of these things are, these are big deals. And I think it's, it's hard to know specifically what to make until you know the granularity about the agents and about what they mean by vasoplegic shock with, with pressor infusion rates uh, and just how refractory to supportive care that they've been. Um, and if it really kind of bears out that these are patients that you would not expect a survival rate of 80%, then okay, maybe, you know, I stand down and maybe there's a role. But un until that, I I'm not sure that I look at this and say, wow, that survival rate of 80% um, is, is A, attributable to the ECMO, and B, worth the complications that are coming along uh, with that, that pretty significant invasive intervention. So, um, I, I don't know that this answers the question for me, and it certainly does not push me further down the road of wanting to, to offer ECMO for a, for a pathology that I don't think mechanistically um, makes sense uh, for, for using it. Yeah, I, I agree with what was just said. Um, I feel like this this kind of pushes me away from vasoplegic shock states for VA ECMO, but were these patients inherently sicker to the point that they were higher risk for catastrophic issues at baseline, but 50% of complications, very significant complications is extremely high. Uh, so it'd be great if we could somehow theoretically have a similar paper on the survival rate for patients that have similar cardiogenic or vasoplegic shock states at amlodipine and see what their survival rate is. Because if their survival rate is anywhere near 80%, I think a lot of us would then say we shouldn't be using um, ECMO. Right. We almost need the denominator from that Illinois study. How many of those vasoplegic shocks died without uh, out of all those who did have vasoplegic shock? Unfortunately, they only looked at fatalities, so it's hard to suss anything out. These are two two studies that feel like they're very quasi-associated, but they're sort of two ships passing in the night in terms of matching an outcome with each other. Um, for, for reference, uh, another, of course, Minnesota group study on ECMO in poisonings found that the overall survival for poisoning in ECMO was 70%, um, but it was higher amongst those who had cardiovascular poisons. So you're most likely to survive. Uh, th those who do best on ECMO are cardiovascular poisonings as opposed to metabolic or hematologic poisonings. Personally, I think this just all points to the fact that in the coming years, there needs to be a little potentially a little bit more discussion and a little bit more light shined on ECMO has always been thought of for refractory cardiovascular collapse, but is it all collapse or are there different collapses where it's necessary. If it's collapsed because it's vasoplegia, is there another route we should go because there are high complication rates? 
as opposed to collapse due to dysfunctioning myocardium. I feel like this is a good source of conversation that we should be having as the toxicologists with our ECMO teams at most places, you know, the, the final decision on this is the ECMO provider and, and our perfusionist to, to do this or not. And if you haven't had those conversations ahead of time on when we're going to pull the trigger, so to speak, to do ECMO, then it becomes some patients might be put on that shouldn't or vice versa. My institution only uh, recently in the last year started to do ECMO cases. Um, so I know our perfusionists are very selective about what cases they will take. And they're really taking the cases that they're taking cases that from the mechanistic standpoint have the greatest likelihood of having success with ECMO. I think that's really such a good point that you bring up, uh, Dan and, and Natalia. There seems to be quite a bit of variability in the gung-ho-ness of cannulation amongst many different institutions. So when it comes to these high resource, potentially highly invasive and, you know, debatable, at least, you know, conversationable efficacy uh, uh, interventions, the time to have the conversation about who is a good candidate is probably not, is probably not when they're crashing right in front of you and probably feeling out that data with, with studies like this and your ECMO team uh, long beforehand can go a long way in determining who the right candidates are. I guess, you know, one thing to consider, I guess, in some of these vasoplegic shocks, if you are like maxed out on every presser and you're on high dose insulin and all these things, if you crank your output up high enough, I mean, you, in theory, that does increase your blood pressure. So maybe, you know, if your SVR is 0.1 and you turn your cardiac output to 30, you'll get a, you'll get something out of it, I guess, but I don't know. Well, I, I think that was a great discussion, perhaps much heat, but little light was generated uh, but I, I do appreciate getting to ping some of these ideas off much brighter than myself. So thank you guys for that. I think we're going to go on to our, our next category here, which is something pertinent to many, especially off in the northeastern part of the United States. Category two, xylazine. Abstract four, tranked-dope opioid overdose. Clinical outcomes for emergency department patients with illicit opioid overdose adulterated with xylazine. This abstract was from Dr. Love and uh, some of the toxic group. This was a multi-center perspective cohort. It was essentially adults with a suspected opioid overdose who presented to one of nine participating emergency departments in the United States over a one-year time period. And they used waste serum from the patient. And these were analyzed by liquid chromatography, quadruple time of flight, mass spec, for illicit opioids, uh, different fentanyl analogs, adulterants, and xylazine. And essentially what they did was they compared patients that had uh, opioids in their system to xylazine plus an opioid. Uh, they ended up having a total of 321 patients that were analyzed. 90 of them had xylazine in their system versus 231 did not have xylazine in their system and they had opioids or um, one of the analogs in their system. 80% uh, of, the, of the patients uh, from each group about the same received naloxone. And after controlling for multiple confounders, um, including age, sex, race, prior psychiatric history, blood pressure, and how much naloxone they received, uh, they, they found that patients with xylazine in their system had a significantly lower possibility of having a cardiac arrest. So with the odds ratio of uh, 0.3, 
and coma. So xylazine, I guess the, the overarching question of this whole uh, this whole study, this abstract is, does xylazine um, cause decreased mental status without actually decreasing your respiratory drive, um, which may theoretically lead to less cardiac or, um, cardiac arrest? Yeah, I thought this was a very interesting study. Fantastic. Some of the only kind of controlled comparative data of our people who are being exposed to TRANK, which is xylazine or fent- and fentanyl versus just fentanyl. And lo and behold, you know, we're all worried about xylazine. It has a lot of complications. But in this study, it actually seems like the patients did better with xylazine because they had less cardiac arrest and less coma. Those aren't the only two outcomes in the world that matter. But I thought that was kind of interesting. And I'm not sure why. A question that that we would like to know would be, when is this coma? Was this a coma at time of arrival? Was this coma before they got naloxone, after they got naloxone? and also, uh, does it be phenomenal if we had quantitative data on this? Is is this fentanyl being cut with xylazine? So, in lieu of having an opioid, you're having xylazine, or or is that totally negligent? That could definitely impact some of the different findings that these authors found compared to uh, primarily the Philadelphia area's findings. There's a lot of xylazine in the fentanyl uh, illicit heroin supply in the Philadelphia area, and I believe it was from one of the MMWRs from the CDC that said it's been associated with increasing opioid-related fatalities, and that's the detection of xylazine as well as the quantity of xylazine detected in samples has been increasing. In Massachusetts, where I am, in supplies sent to Massachusetts Drug Supply Data Stream found over the last year that it went from being a very low incidence, uh, low quantity kind of cutting agent to now it's uh, being very much detected and at much higher ratios to uh, now be considered a high cutting agent. Anecdotally, I don't think I'm seeing less fatalities with potential xylazine fentanyl uh, combinations. Um, I find with these cases, uh, we tend to uh, not have the adequate response to naloxone because naloxone is not going to reverse the additive CNS and potentially respiratory depression from xylazine. So we tend to intubate a lot more patients. It's just such a, it's such an unexpected takeaway uh, from, <laughs> from this study. You're right, Ryan. It's, it's a, it's a really thoughtful study. They, they, they have comparator groups and, and have data that are not generally readily available with liquid chromatography data. And so all of that is very compelling, but in the absence of um, knowing if there is an acute exposure or knowing the quantity of the exposure or what other fentalogs were potentially present, there's just so many other confounders that I think potentially contribute to such surprising results that I look at this and I want to say, cool, um, Zylan seems protective, uh, huzzah. Uh, but that is just so, it's just so contrary to, to how, and how I could possibly process this. I, that I just don't, I don't know that I look at this and I think I've got a takeaway. And that's, again, that's absolutely no commentary on the study or on, on the authors. I just, it's such a surprising study that I would just beg for more granularity and data. And I, I honestly, I don't even know necessarily the quantitative assays would answer that question. And fentanyl has got such profound uh, lipid distribution that really concentrations don't correlate well with clinical uh, clinical phenotype. So we can talk quantitative stuff all day. I would love to know kind of further detail about other fentanyl logs that were present, or if there's other historical data about if they you know if they have con- you know any uh, 
comment about known use of xylazine from the patient themselves, if they've got any commentary about the actual, um, the actual content of the drug supply that's out there in, in a lot of these fentanyl studies. And so there's a lot of other, I think, pieces of this puzzle that are missing that it would provide a lot more understanding of, of these uh, data, but it's, it's, it's a super interesting study. And I think so much of this um, will inform really the management of the emergent opioid toxidrome when they come into the emergency department as xylazine becomes more prevalent because those toxidromes overlap so profoundly. Uh, and you, you know, to, to make the, the gigantic leap and extension of xylazine to clonidine and does clonidine res- response in naloxone, that has been one of the things that floats around in my mind is, is maybe is, is the presence of these alpha-2 agonists have something to do with these reports of these massive requirements of naloxone that are popping up here and there. Um, and, and does this kind of contribute to that? So, you know, does, does the xylazine change outcome? Does it change our response? And, but I just ultimately, I am not sure what to do with this. Um, it's, it's an interesting start. Grant, you actually reminded me of something I thought about when I was reading this uh, abstract and then forgot to bring up here. This is all of the patients that made it to the ED, correct? So this means that theoretically could be that more patients didn't make it to ED and they, they made it to a medical examiner instead. So I, I would love if this group or a group uh, with similar resources could actually maybe do a secondary study of looking at uh, the percentage of cases at the medical examiner for what their, their qualitative analysis, um, because it's, it's all living patients in this. And uh, I mean, it's obviously a well thought out study, but that becomes kind of a limitation also. Right. I think maybe we're suffering from the wrong denominator once again. This could be a little bit of sampling bias. You know, maybe xylazine trank dope is so potent, most people do die. And if you don't, it's because you didn't take enough, so you got to the ED. I mean, that's uh, who knows really what's going on. Uh, but at least from a pragmatic standpoint, you know, these are the people you will see in practice. And it does seem that they did better for who knows what reason potentially you know maybe it causes you to become unconscious faster so you stop using but it protects the respiratory function but that doesn't seem likely to me yeah like i agree i think there's a lot more to know and we probably need another comparative sample of who's in, getting autopsied uh, how many people are showing up at the me some great things they do in this this was nine different eds though so it's a great representative population and it's essentially blinded to the investigators. You have no idea what they were exposed to until way later when the confirmatory testing comes back. So you're treating each patient the same. Uh, and that's kind of cool. I wish I could have seen data on how much naloxone each group needed. That would have been really interesting. Well, more to come on that, I'm sure, as xylazine continues to rifle through America. Category 3, case reports with terrifying clinical implications. Abstract 5. Recovery after polydrug overdose despite blood flow imaging demonstrating no brain perfusion. I'm actually going to read this one because it shook me to my core. Recovery after polydrug overdose despite blood flow imaging demonstrating no brain perfusion. I'm going to let that sink in for just a moment. This is a 42-year-old woman who was found unresponsive with empty bottles of tizanidine zopaclone and hydroxyzine nearby. She was intubated because she had no gag reflex. She was unresponsive to pineal stimuli and having seizures approximately every 30 minutes. She was then sedated with continuous IV midazolam and propofol. She was given sodium bicarbonate for a wide QRS. She was put on norepinephrine for hypotension and had her seizures treated with levotracetam. On hospital day two, her sedation was turned off 
for six hours, but then restarted. Okay. On hospital day three, the patient was sedated with midazolam and propofol. She had no corneal cough or gag reflexes and was taken a nuclear medicine for a brain blood flow scan. The scan showed no dynamic perfusion in the cerebrovascular system over three minutes and had delayed frontal and lateral images that showed no tracer activity within the brain, but some uptake into the nasal region. And then on hospital day four, she had her sedation changed to dexmedetomidine, and she actually slowly started waking up. She began to follow simple commands. Her EEG showed moderate encephalopathy, and she had progressive neurologic improvement until on hospital day eight, the patient transferred to behavioral health in good condition. Actually, that was on hospital day 11. But the point here, this patient who took a polysubstance ingestion with some GABA and anticholinergic activity and was sedated on propofol as well as midazolam, had a nuclear medicine scan that showed no brain perfusion. And terrifyingly, I think that's sort of the what a lot of people use as the final step before declaring brain death in a toxin overdose, and this patient still woke up. So I think there's certainly some confounding here, given that the patient was on all these sedatives when she went through the brain scan, but you know, what, what do you guys think about this? This is such a terrifying case. And I feel like this is always these types of things when we have patients that we believe are probably neurologically devastated. I feel like this is always in the background and the back of all of our minds as toxicologists, is, is this a brain death mimic or not? The one thing that, and Ryan, you may have seen it or not. I, I, I wish I had, I don't feel like there was an EEG described prior to the perfusion scan. Um, the only one I believe and I, 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 that I believe is spoken about is the encephalopathy after the perfusion scan, I would like to know if there was an EEG done before that. I personally, my own personal practice, I don't use EEGs a whole lot to change my practice on if a patient that's seasoned that's a tox patient, most of the time, you know, they read it as toxic encephalopathy, something like that. But in a patient that is, we're trying to figure out if it's a brain death mimic or not, if there's any kind of waveforms, those would be pushing me more towards, uh, towards not complete brain death. Uh, but the perfusion scan being... <laughs> showing brain death is just terrifying. Right. So uh, for context, for listeners, in case they're not familiar, so ACMT has a guideline for how to determine brain death in overdose, or more so, uh, it's a position statement they put out in 2017 for how to interpret the neurology evidence-based guidelines for declaring brain death in the setting of overdose. You can go check them out online, but this is a, kind of an abridged summary the neurology guidelines say before you declare brain death, you need to identify approximate and irreversible cause of brain death. Well, having a drug on board is a reversible cause, and thus you really can't declare brain death doing brain death testing if a drug is still on board. So the ACMT guidelines say do your absolute best using you know testing or a really focused history to figure out what drug the patient could be on and wait at least five half-lives of that drug before doing brain death testing. But obviously, we know that that is so limited in toxicology for so many reasons. Overdoses prolong your half-life. If you take a huge dose of drug, even you know waiting five half-lives, you might still have a good amount of drug left, even if it's only 3% of the drug that's left. And most of the time, we're not going to confirm what drug it is anyways. So now you're waiting five half-lives 
of five therapeutic half-lives, not the same as an overdose half-life, of a drug that we're not even sure they took. So we, we basically never know if the drug is on board or not when doing brain death testing clinically. I mean, it just frequently that's the case. So the ACMT guidelines say, essentially, since you can never really do brain death testing accurately, if you don't know if the drug's on board or not, you should do a cerebral perfusion scan as the final step before declaring brain death. There's a bunch of different scans people can do. You can check out the guidelines. They say things like a Cerebral angiography, transcranial Doppler, uh, single photon emission CT. Uh, they say all these things. And they say, you know, currently there's no evidence that has been found that a drug or toxin could be the sole cause of, you know, an absent cerebral blood flow scan. And it seems unlikely that a drug or toxin could do that. So I think for most people in most practices, this is the final step that we do before declaring brain death. Because of all of the other weak tools that we have, this is sort of the last thing that we can try. And it appears, at least based off of this study, that this test is flawed as well. And what was also really scary for me, too, is um, when they did the scan, the patient was receiving midazolam 4 milligrams an hour and propofol uh, uh, 20 mics per kg per minute. Um, Those are pretty low doses in the grand scheme of, uh, you know, sedatives. Uh, so the fact that the perfusion scan showed uh, kind of no flow um, really makes me wonder how much uh, tizanidine, hydroxyzine, and the azolpiclam, uh the patient did take um, because it must have been a massive amount um, uh, to have a brain death mimic when the sedation that was being provided by the hospital uh, with midazolam and propofol was at relatively the low doses. Well, honestly, should they have even been on sedation when they went for brain scan is a question that I have. I mean, if we're trying to rule out brain death and, they, and maybe they took it off and it's just not clarified well in this case report. They but had took it off, but the patients uh, started seizing again. So it was uh, started back up again um, to help with the epilepsy control. Ah, that would make more sense. Okay. I have nothing smart to add. This is terrifying. And uh, <laughs> you can't you can't keep somebody uh, intubated and sedated forever waiting for them to clear. I think we have guidance available. We have a lot of weak tools. Um, and this, you know, it's obviously unacceptable if you ever <laughs> take somebody to donation for um, before they're truly brain dead. And so I don't, other than uh, sleepless nights, I don't have a whole lot of, uh, of of things that will change based on this because it, it it's hard to change practice on a case report, but boy, that's a scary one. So um, I would, you know, would love to read the, whole, the, the case report in more detail and see if there's other things that maybe I can latch onto as something, some sort of comfort, but based on the, the way we've described it, um, it's a, a fairly thorough investigation and evaluation. It's still through the other direction. I do wonder um, why the patient, you know, did the patient just start waking up that rapidly after a brain scan that there was no time to take them to, to organ donation or were there other things going on with them that were other signs of life that maybe uh, aren't presented, you know, here that we're talking about. And so maybe there's more than, than meets the eye, but if there's not, uh, it is alarming. You really bring up an interesting point there. You know, this patient happened to wait around long enough after the brain scan to wake up. But most patients, this is the final step before they go for, you know, organ harvest or we withdraw supportive cares. So, <clears throat> I mean, no guideline ever said this was the gold standard. It's just sort of the last step, the last tool that we have. And it sort of makes sense 
that there aren't many cases reporting that the tool has failed because we do the test and then we never keep looking <laughs> to find out if you know they improve despite their cerebral blood flow scan. And am I the only one that these three medications that this person reportedly took, those are not on my short list of brain death mimics. So that's also the secondary, very, very terrifying part of this case report right. is that, am I supposed to expand my differential for brain death mimics? At this point, I I haven't, but this is not on my short list. I haven't added them to my list either. I think I would have uh, been more convinced to do so if there were levels that were reported for this patient um, to, one, confirm that these were the substances that were actually ingested and contributed to the pitcher and not just the empty bottles, you know, find out the scene. And if the levels were, you know, off the charts, then I, I think I'd be, you know, more on board with it. Uh, but without having that quantitative um, evidence, I don't think I'll be adding either of these three drugs uh, to my list of brain death mimics. So I do think there is one thing that this sort of changes or reinforces for me. Frequently in toxicology, we discuss that testing doesn't always change care. But in patients who don't have any other you know, catastrophic brain injury findings on imaging, and they're doing brain death testing, it might be valuable to test in order to ensure that drug is no longer in the system so that you can adequately perform brain uh, brainstem reflex testing or perfusion scans and feel they are not confounded by the drug. And there have been cases reported to me by colleagues where the only reason that the patient remained intubated for a few extra days to wake up was because they were waiting on the confirmatory levels to return. Yeah. So there might actually be some utility in sending off levels or concentrations just to confirm that they're no longer in the system or at least at therapeutic levels. Sure. Uh, and while it may delay care by a few days, it could potentially grant a lifetime of days. Yeah. Abstract six. Acute thiamine deficiency is a complication of insulin euglycemic therapy for an amlodipine overdose. All right. So this is a case, uh, looks like out of Ontario from Dr. Ostina and Meritab, case of a patient who developed a hyperlactatemia after 11 days of high-dose insulin, thought to be due to a thiamine deficiency from glucose overutilization. Um, pretty easy. <laughs> pretty easy. Yeah, that's, that's really straightforward. Um, and so this is, uh, that's interesting. I would love to know more detail and I, I certainly don't want to like pull out the claws before I actually know the meat of the case, but I will say, and I believe actually there's some folks with amongst our colleagues who are starting to look at the, the, the question of, can you precipitate a Wernicke's encephalopathy due to the administration of uh, dextrose before, prior to the repletion of thiamine. Um, and so uh, I, I look at this and my, my gut reaction is I, I would want to know a lot more detail um, because to, to look at that old paradigm that is based on a lot of very old case reports of folks who got a lot of dextrose uh, and absolutely no thiamine, uh, those who were uh, dealing with you know, alcoholic ketoacidosis and things of that effect. Uh, so patients who were profoundly malnourished, patients who got, it sounds like fairly um, substandard care in that they didn't have other nutrients repleted uh, and developed ultimately a, a thiamine depletion in the setting of prolonged dextrose use. And I believe that that is where that paradigm really originates from. Uh, mechanistically, is it possible that thiamine deficiency can lead to hyperlactatemia and that uh, the prolonged use of insulin and, and uh, dextrose could, could drive that? Sure, that makes sense. 
but there's, you know, if, if you're on, you know, insulin and, and dextrose for an amlodipine overdose in the first place, I think there's a lot of reasons to have a hyperlactatemia. So again, I, I, I want to um, not uh, go f- too far off the ledge uh, with, with conclusions about this, but I would wonder a lot of details uh, before attributing it definitively to the thiamine deficiency. So I completely agree. And I have a couple more details. For I you. love that. It was a 15 year, year old female who weighed about 50 kilos and she was on high dose insulin for approximately 10 days, as well as norepinephrine. And it looks like she had a lot of other problems as well. She developed acute respiratory distress syndrome. She needed prone positioning for hypoxemia on day two. On day 11, her serum lactate peaked to 11.4, but it had been running between two and eight prior to that. So it wasn't like it was zero the whole time. After that happened, they did an echo that actually showed she was hyperdynamic. I don't remember what this, this was an amlodipine overdose once again. Okay. They did an echo, showed that she actually was hyperdynamic in her cardiac activity and decided she didn't need insulin and dextrose anymore. That's pretty great. Uh, on day 12 of admission, they decided maybe she was acutely thiamine deficient because she had persistent lactatemia even after all these things had been turned off. She received 100 milligrams of IV thiamine with a decrease in her serum lactate from 11 to 7.7. And they started thiamine replacement therapy with 250 milligrams IV three times a day, and her lactate normalized after two days. So I agree, she definitely had other potential confounding factors, but it is interesting that they turned off the insulin, gave thiamine, and it went down. And it kind of just, I, I think it's a sneaky thing I never really would have had on my radar. And I appreciate that this at least threw it on there in terms of association. Maybe, you know, obviously you're going to rule out other nosocomial problems that are going to bump your lactate on day 11, but this would definitely be something to think about. It, it, is it possible? I, I don't know if this is a causation, but it's pretty, I think it's an interesting mechanism. Be interesting to know like what other risk factors the patient potentially had for thiamine deficiency. Um, you, with her being uh, 15 years old, um, in, you know, 50 kilos, was there a component of like anorexia or bulimia that may have, uh, uh, put her at greater risk coupled with the critical illness from, um, the, the overdose, um, and then getting the glucose, uh, as part of the high dose insulin therapy, maybe those factors altogether is what contributed to it, it rather than it just being, the glucose content from the high-dose insulin therapy. This is a very fascinating conversation, but amlodipine rears its ugly head again. Um, feels like <laughs> the, the theme for this for today, uh, but it would be nice to have a little bit more information on because um, essentially uh, acute wet beriberi is, is what they're, they're saying. And I'd like a little bit more of like the clinical description of other signs besides just the lactate that they, you know, that they're, they're associating with that. As we've kind of discussed a lot on amlodipine, it's going to cause that vasoplegic shock. And is that contributing to some of this? It's definitely interesting, but I'll tell you, my my simple brain really likes that this could be the cause. <laughs> I mean, what's the harm of one dose of thiamine? If more people are getting more thiamine, I think the world's a better place. So, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm hesitant to, to buy into this full-throatedly, but... Um, Thiamine's a pretty friendly medication. It's in. It's snuck snuck into my my differential there. It's there and it's planted and I'm going to need someone to disprove it now. (laughs) I I feel like all four of us are drawing the Krebs cycle in our head right now. (laughs) And the pharmacist in me is like, I know there's no 
evidence-based thiamine uh, kind of dosing scheme that we would do. Uh, but they were only doing, I believe it was 200 milligrams of thiamine. And I was like, was this during the thiamine shortage uh, so that they couldn't do the full 500 milligrams? Right, uh, and this was yeah. uh, one of their, you know, drug shortage action plan solutions that was put into place. Yeah, yeah. They, I mean, it wasn't very much. But uh, either way, an interesting potential novel side effect uh, as we continue to utilize or hydrosynxonuglycemia at higher doses and longer times, something that maybe we should just keep an eye out and look for more signal. Abstract 7, Challenges in Diagnosing an Environmental Cause of Recurrent Machemoglobinemia. So this was Dr. Leanne Cook and Michael Levine from the Department of Emergency Medicine at UCLA. The case report was of a chronic methemoglobinemia in a patient who actually had environmental testing done and found low levels of nitrites within their water. But they then supposedly ran their dishwasher and retested their water a few months later as they had recurrent methemoglobinemia, and the levels were like 30 or maybe 300-fold higher. I actually can't remember. So I thought this was one of those, uh, a case with terrifying clinical implications because oftentimes, I know we have had cases of chronic methemoglobinemia that we're working up for dapsone slow acetylators and what's in your water and do you have herbicides at home and all this. I think a lot of times we rely on a single um, potential environmental test and it appears in this case with repeat testing during different um uh, during different circumstances, when different appliances were running, we had widely uh, variable results. So I don't know, did, did you guys ever run into anything, chronic methemoglobinemia, and they end up with some kind of a big environmental workup? I feel like usually the lens starts to point toward the patient a little bit more than the environment. Uh, when this happens, you start to look for genetic causes. And I, I don't know if it's kind of a standard process for these recurrent or chronic folks uh, to get things like... Um, uh, NADH, cytochrome B5 reductase deficiencies and things to that effect. Um, but that, that in my mind is where uh, the lens typically lands um, in kind of conjunction with folks taking a, a broad look at the environment. I've certainly had a few cases where it's just a very unsatisfying ending. And we think, wow, we just kind of came up empty and they're feeling better. Great. Um, but, but to your point, Ryan, if it can change this much, uh, you know, temporally, um, then it's, it's certainly worth taking a fresh look each time, each time the, the lab comes back abnormal, because uh, I think that's, that's, it's an impressive finding and, and something that, that maybe changes kind of how you would approach these rebound cases. I think for me, it's just, maybe, maybe we need to test twice, run the dishwasher. I, <laughs> I don't know. That's, that's, that's pretty fascinating. The question is, who do you who do you reach out to to do all this environmental workup? You know, with lead, most of our states have pretty robust environmental testing systems in place. And these situations, I can call the Department of Public Health, but do we have the resources or any kind of infrastructure to do serial testing of however many samples they need from every water source? It's a fascinating question to, to, to have. I'm glad that they came up with this a fascinating case because very smart people figured this out. Um, I don't know how I how I would be able to change it in 
you know, my state's infrastructure. I'm I'm going to give the credit to the patient here because they actually bought home test kits. And I think they said there's no way this is negative. And they because they showed up with med hemoglobin levels of greater than 30 percent multiple times uh, and, and ended up needing it. So there are at least right. We're in a similar boat. We have little control over the resources that can be, um, you know, mobilized for something like this. But patients, there are a lot of home testing kits now uh, for water and other things. And I guess it's going to have to be sometimes it falls on them, unfortunately, in our system to decide how much they want to invest here. I would love to see patients like this in our tox clinic. This would be the perfect patient to have at the top. Highly motivated. Highly Highly motivated. um, Very well thought out. Case series levels before and after dishwasher run cycles and... If it came from the tap on the first floor, second floor, all of that. That's the next, that's a good NACCT study next year. My own personal nitrite distribution throughout my home with and without appliances running. Ryan, the one that I want you to kind of touch on is your your group's iron study. Essentially, oh, yeah. Let's, let's jump right into that. Category four, comparative evidence, prognostication, and triage. Abstract eight. Utility of pre-4-hour iron concentration in predicting toxicity. Am I allowed to read this one myself or is that a conflict? So this is a study that we did myself, uh, Dr. Jill Theobald, who's our associate director of the medical uh, of the poison center, uh, as well as our two EMPGY2 pharmacy residents. Ryan forgot to mention that those residents' names are Dr. Abigail Sharp and Dr. Haley Fox. And my colleague, Matt Stanton at the poison center. And we were trying to figure out the utility of a Pre-four-hour iron level in predicting toxicity. To give some clinical context, and I and I want to ask you guys before I dive into this. So, iron traditionally uh, is said to be absorbed within four to six hours. So it actually has a little bit of a longer absorption time than many of our drugs, where we say usually within two to four hours, right? But iron kind of goes through active transport; the body tightly regulates it, so it's absorbed a little later. So for quite a while, our practice was to check a four-hour level and to make sure we were looking at quote-unquote peak absorption, and then to check an eight-hour level to make sure we knew which direction it was going. But we were running into all of these patients who would show up in the emergency department and the shotgun kind of fast-thinking move was, oh, they took iron, let's check iron. And now I have a two-hour iron level and I don't really know what to do with that. So we have all this excess data. Is there some way that we can weaponize it in uh, prognosticating for toxicology? So that was sort of the impetus of our study. Before I go into it, in terms of your each of your practices um, or, or throughout training, did you have any special you know timing for when you would check iron levels in an acute overdose or acute ingestion? I feel like you hear a little bit different everywhere. We would always do the six hour. Now, if the patient was showing uh, systemic signs of toxicity, like they were already having uh, hypotension, those are going to be cases that we were going to probably treat with uh, DFO anyway, and would utilize the earlier iron levels uh, to, you know, make the case that, well, if it's already causing hypotension and the level is greater than, you know, 350 now, 
in two hours, three hours, it's probably still going to be um, elevated or to the point that we'd still be giving antidote and give the antidote. But for our cases that present early and haven't had any symptoms or maybe only had minimal GI distress, those are cases that we'd always say, oh, we're going to get uh, another level at six hours before we make a decision on uh, defaroxamine therapy. Between <clears throat> training in Chicago and then Minnesota and and Iowa, I feel like all places had a little bit of uh, differences of how they did it. So I still am trying to get my finger on the pulse of exactly every single time doing the same thing. Most of the time, as, as you alluded to, Ryan, the whole purpose of the study or how you guys had this data was that a lot of times I have an iron level before I'm even called. And that ends up being at two to three hours or whatever. And in our where I where I practice, we actually determine this uh, level of care. So we determine if a patient goes to the floor versus ICU versus home versus anything. And so, you know, if someone has iron deficiency anemia, anemia and they have a three-hour level that they're still iron deficient on their iron panel, <laughs> I can probably start working towards a floor bed uh, versus that three-hour level. They're they're you know getting close to DFO uh, kind of cutoff, but I still do similar to what Natalia said that I, I get them past six, eight, ten hours, kind of with repeat, and every case is a little different on on the nuance of how you know if they're drastically going up or not. Yeah, and, and fairly consistent from Rocky Mountain Point, and we want to get at least something uh, six hours or post, and then at least a couple of data points to to demonstrate a fairly steady trend, especially if we're approaching. Uh, that 500 cutoff, or if the patients really have prominent GI symptoms, which I mean, they'll do. But um, if, if there's anything that's, that's making even semi-borderline, then a, a couple of data points is the big thing, but certainly looking six hours in post. Right. So I'm hearing later levels, obviously clinical symptoms will guide therapy faster, but generally we're waiting for that full absorption. So we were trying to figure out, could we do anything with these earlier levels? And uh, we looked at patients who had two iron concentrations. One had to be before four hours. So your standard, hey, they show up, they get an iron level. And we say, well, I don't know what to do with that yet. So get another one. And we basically plotted their initial iron level and then evaluated whether the patient ended up needing defaroxamine for any reason. So they had serious symptoms uh, or they had a, a level of greater than 350 and some symptoms, or they had an asymptomatic level of 500. Those are generally the people who got defaroxamine because those were the people who were worried were going to go up pretty high. And we evaluated whether or not their pre-four-hour level could predict whether they were going to develop symptoms or need defaroxamine. And what we found was a pre-four-hour iron level of less than 300 mics per deciliter in both our intentional overdoses and our unintentional overdoses, had a 100% negative predictive value for needing antidotal therapy with defaroxamine. So these patients weren't going to end up getting chelated if you were below 300 before four hours. The average time it took for our patients to peak, as it would be, uh, was about 181 minutes. Now recognize we didn't have control over when the labs were drawn, so that's not an exact peak. That was when we were seeing our peak level. Um, it was a little bit longer in the intentional group, 240 minutes. So that's about four hours or so. But if there was an anticholinergic ingested with it, I actually loved this. This is kind of proof of concept that our gastric motility slowing agents really do delay absorption. Uh, our peak time was 10 hours, sorry, 551 minutes. So we did see delayed absorption, although actually our peaks were happening pretty quick, it looked like. Uh, so kind of our takeaways from this were that 
Yeah, peak absorption can be longer than four hours, especially if there's an anticholinergic involved. But in this data series, if you were going to develop toxicity, you were going to hit a level of above 300 within the first four hours. And the range here was about 30 minutes to four hours, although it was more within the two to four hour range. How I use this data personally, you know, I'm still uncomfortable with a single time point because it's not where you are, it's where you're going, right? So, but I do think using the combination of the initial, you know, sh you know, shotgun iron that gets drawn by whoever's seen the patient with a second level, you know, within a, you know, before four hours even kind of makes me feel more comfortable in saying this patient's not going to develop serious symptoms. Uh, so if I have a level of, you know, 150 right away and the next one is 250 at four hours, I might be, you know, less like less concerned uh, that they're really going to develop any symptoms, despite them not being at that six hour level. So yeah, I thought it was kind of interesting. Go ahead, tear it apart. No, no tearing, uh, no tearing to be done. It's it's super interesting, Ryan. Um, a couple of questions come to mind. And the first one is, you know, this is a single center. It's five years. Um, and I, I think back in my fellowship experience and I gave DFO, I mean, a couple of times, not a ton. Um, and that's with a fairly big poison center. And so my first question is how many patients got sick enough to need DFO period? Um, and kind of, is this, is there some degree of um, sample size bias? Whereas if nobody gets DFO period over the course of five years, which I'm sure is not the case, um, but if nobody gets it for, you know, over five years, well, then your negative predictive value is hundred percent. Um, and so I think it's, it's super important to know how sick this population was. I think it'd be incredibly helpful to have some general sense. I mean, this, this number is always so uh, wishy-washy, but to have a general sense of mix per keg for what the ingestion was to be able to kind of stratify in your mind of how bad you're expecting them to get in the first place. Um, but really, I, the, the, the main question I want to know is how much DFO is being given and, and does this really help to differentiate um, the sick from the not sick or are we just looking at a generally not sick population? Right. And that's a great question. 132 patients included. Uh, 93 of these were intentional ingestion. And that's really, you know, I have never really seen an unintentional iron get very sick. They usually get a couple of tablets and they're okay. So I really care about, you know, what pops into my head. It's usually an adolescent female who took, you know, a large amount of OTC iron that they had in the home and in a self-harm attempt. Uh, so we had 93 intentional ingestions. Deferoxamine was used to treat six patients. So it's about, what is that, 7.5%, something like that, attack rate of, you know, iron greater than 500 or severe symptoms. So absolutely, like you said, it it is just because by the nature of ingestions in general, I think many of them don't end up with severe symptoms. You know, we have like a 1% mortality rate in all of poisonings overall. Um, but actually, I was sort of surprised to see that we used use DFO six times in that in that year. We were using it once a year. Kind of interesting. So some people did develop toxicity. Is that a massive sample? No, maybe we need a collaborative uh, between a couple of different sites to really say we have enough sensitivity in terms of our population. Because uh, we could probably do a sensitivity calculation here to see the 95% confidence interval in that. Um, and it might change a little bit. It is somewhat, I, I agree. I, I don't know that it's a hundred percent there with the smaller sample size. I think it would be great too, to look at it in an adult patient population, 
in my experience at like Boston Medical Center and a lot from my my fellowship was it was primarily a pediatric adolescent population. And in those cases, they're going to spend more time in the ED anyway, because you're uh, getting social services involved. So for them, getting a, you know, six hour level, it's, it's no, it's no big deal because the patient's going to be there anyway. But in our adult EDs where having the patient need to stay an extra two hours, needing about an hour for that left turnaround, that three extra hours could make a big difference in times of, you know, high ED boarding, which I think is everywhere these days. So I would like to see this done in a primarily adult uh, ED population. And like others have already said, you know, collaborating with, you know, other centers to try to have it uh, have larger numbers and potentially sicker uh, iron overdoses. Yeah, I feel like this is ripe for a multi-center study, whether that's, you know, toxic or NPDS or just uh, regional poison centers all kind of getting together and, and pulling their data and seeing how how, how we can use a, po- a power calculation or whatever we need. Um, it's fascinating work. And I'm actually, when you when I saw this, uh, I just keep thinking about this. Like, is this ready for prime time? And I, I like it a lot. Uh, I feel like it, a secondary study with a little bit more patience, maybe, maybe, um, maybe there, but not yet, but close. Agree. I don't know if it's prime time, but it's one of those things where when there's no data, kind of fuzzy data tends to occupy that part of your mind. And then when you get that really borderline patient that your gestalt says, I think they're going to do okay. And there was that one bad study that showed, <laughs> and you're kind of like, well, maybe they'll, they'll be okay. They could go home early. But yes, I agree. More more data should probably be used. Abstract 9. Andexanet alpha versus four-factor prothrombin complex concentrate for intracranial hemorrhage at a level one trauma hospital. One question. Is andexanet alpha on formulary? Yes, but it will not be given because our ED pharmacists are brilliant human beings and their entire job in that situation is to say no. Um, (laughs) It's a no-go. I love it. We have not uh, added it to our formulary either. So it's always fun when our uh, very small community hospitals uh, send the patient in on Indexa for their uh, uh, head bleeds. And then our neurology department is like, we need to figure out how to continue this. And uh, MedFlight is like, but we need to leave with our pump. And it's like, well, we need to get every last drop out of that tubing before you can leave. That's yeah. fantastic. Did they have it at, in Colorado? Yeah, we had it. Inter-individual enthusiasm about it. Um, some folks who uh, would rally behind the cause and, and some folks who would put the kibosh. So this was a retrospective review of all patients who received four-factor PCC or um, Indexa for an ICH while being treated with a factor 10 inhibitor uh, over a six-year time frame. Also done by colleagues in Minnesota. Their primary outcomes included good or excellent uh, hemostatic um, effectiveness uh, based on ICH volume change on head CT and good functional outcome based on a uh, Glasgow outcome score greater than three at discharge. Our radiologists were blinded to reversal agents for each patient, uh, and they were the ones to calculate the hemorrhage volume before and after reversal. Secondary outcomes included things like hospital length of stay, incidence of thrombosis, discharge location cost, um, and drug concentrations. 
The authors found no difference in hemostatic effectiveness or good outcomes when either four-factor PCC or Indexa were used for apixaban or rivaroxaban-related ICHs at this level one uh, trauma center. When patients received Indexa, the median cost uh, per patient was $28,000 higher than when they received four-factor PCC. That was pretty much the, the big tagline for me. I think this study did a lot of things right. This was really beautifully done. They looked at patient-specific outcomes, clinical surrogate outcomes that we use to, to uh, choose therapies. So they looked at intracranial hemorrhage volume expansion. They looked at neurologic outcomes at discharge, and they blinded a radiologist to do the calculations on this thing. I think that was really smart of them. And guess what? There was no difference in hemostatic effectiveness or functional outcome regardless of whether you use four-factor PCC or IndexNet Alpha. The only difference was the hospital bill that you're giving to that patient. And that, I think, was a really well-done thing. My, my favorite part about this study was that the poster for this was right next to the Indexa booth at the conference. <laughs> yeah. Well, the FDA is requiring them to compare their drug versus PCC. So this is probably the first of what will be a much larger and ideally randomized study to answer definitively, is one better than the other? But I think right now for many institutions that chose not to bring Indexa to formulary, this helps to support their decision in using four-factor PCC as the primary reversal agent for our uh, rivaroxaban and apixaban. You guys have indexinet, not on formulary. Not on formulary. We had a uh, multidisciplinary discussion that involved our neurocritical care, neurosurgery, critical care, hematologists, and our antithrombotic task force, where we really reviewed what's the currently available literature besides cost. What are the potential benefits of bringing it on versus uh, what are the harms? And as especially as a safety net, you know, hospital, we didn't, in our opinion, there wasn't enough data, especially in terms of patient outcomes um, with like length of stay or better functional uh, outcomes at, you know, discharge to justify uh, what could be a $60,000, you know, per patient expenditure. We elected at the time to say, we'll continue to review this roughly every six months to a year as new data comes out. So far, we have elected not to add it to formulary and have been fortunate that other institutions have added it to formulary and are doing, you know, research like this to compare outcomes with, you know, four-factor PCC to help us have, you know, better data to to either, you know, justify or to change our index of practice at right. Medical Center. I think this is super useful data. We have it on formulary, but its use is pretty infrequent. I thankfully have never had to use it and generally opt for PCC, uh, given the fact that there is no proven benefit and all it does is increase the patient's cost. So cost-effective evidence-based medicine would dictate other therapies. Very interesting. The authors of this paper, I know, had it removed from their formulary, uh, potentially due to this evidence, which I think was really great. Just out of curiosity, at uh, your institution, do you have any specific restrictions uh, for it? Because when I think of our ICHs, probably close to 70% of ours are from rivaroxaban or apixaban. 
And right now we're using just PCC for that. So if we did have Indexa, you know, on formulary, it'd be interesting to know if uh, others have uh, implemented like a like tiered approach to only uh, Epixaban or Rivaroxaban ICHs with certain criteria can get Indexa or you have to fail PCC to then get Indexa. We do have criteria. It's the same exclusion criteria that was used in the original Nexa Fortra. So you need to have a GCS that is greater than seven. You know, you need to have a potential likelihood of a good neurologic outcome. No immediate OR in the next 12 hours. There's really a lot of stipulations which red tape it and make it pretty hard to use. But I think that does limit it to the population in which there was some sort of not even necessarily a clinical benefit, uh, or at least a comparative clinical benefit, but a benefit seen in the study. So I think it's judicious use of a resource. You know, we did a study looking at PCC in warfarin-related intracranial hemorrhage, looking at time to administration. And at the end of the day, you know, what we found was that whether you got Kcentra in 30 minutes or two hours, it didn't make a difference in your neurologic outcome. And I always wonder just just how much does the reversal even affect the overall outcome? Sometimes this train is already on its way and yeah, we're putting our medication resources into it because it's all we can, but it's putting a pillow in front of in front of a train and hoping it'll stop it and doesn't always do it. Well, I think this was a great review. I think we got through really some of the most important abstracts that I saw out there that I found relevant to to my practice and hopefully to others who are listening. And I hope this was at least a fun review if you didn't get to peruse through all the abstracts. I'd like to thank my guests today, Dr. Uh, Grant Comstock, Dr. Dan McCabe, and Dr. Natalia Farrell. Thank you for joining us today. This is fantastic. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this is a lot of fun, Ryan. We appreciate you. Yeah, no, thank you so much for inviting all of us to participate in this. I I do think that we you know, get a lot of really good content at NACT and the abstracts presented have so much of a wider like reach. So I think your podcast would be a great way to share with the community and hopefully, you know, trigger some, you know, research ideas for others so that we'll have uh, even more data out there to help us with, you know, answering so many of these like great questions. I can only hope. Hey, everybody. We had limited time with the guests, but fortunately, you have unlimited time with me. There was a few extra abstracts that I did want to run through because I thought they would be relevant to people's practice. Abstract 10. Fentanyl and fentanyl analog exposure among emergency personnel and first responders. A systematic review. Well, maybe this one's not that clinically impactful, but how could I pass this one up? This was essentially a systematic review of CAPES reports of fentanyl or fentanyl analog exposures, and they found that no emergency medical services had clinically important symptoms from exposure. What is very interesting is they were actually able to detect fentanyl in certain reports from forensic laboratory technicians. So while clinical intoxication was rare, first responders may experience subclinical exposure to fentanyl and fentanyl analogs when inadequate PPE is used. And in fact, inadequate PPE was a common theme. First responders should still employ basic PPE to minimize fentanyl exposure. The long and short, lab techs chronically working with fentanyl had detectable levels, but that's not that important because there were not any symptoms. Subclinical exposure does occur, but symptoms don't. Abstract 11. Significance of falsely low creatinine values in diagnosing massive acetaminophen ingestion. This next case report is from Aaron Guina 
from University of Manitoba, Winnipeg in Canada. This was a case report of a falsely low creatinine from a Tylenol overdose. It measured at 0.08 milligrams per deciliter. The reasoning for this was an interference with the Trinder reaction, which is sometimes used to measure creatinine. NAPKE as well as NAC inhibit the Trinder reaction. So it's possible that both NAC and NAPKE may have interfered with the assay. The actual Trinder reaction is when hydrogen peroxide and 4-aminophenazone combine to form a colored product. This is the last step in many enzymatic creatinine methods. So any analysis using the Trinder reaction is impacted by both NAC and potentially NAPKE. Other labs that might use the Trinder reaction include cholesterol, triglycerides, lactate, lipase, and uric acid. Of course, not all laboratories are going to be using this method to measure creatinine. But if you see a very large acetaminophen level and a very low creatinine level, it might be indicative that NAPKE is already being produced. Maybe talk with your lab to find out what kind of assay they're using to measure their creatinine and see if this could interfere with other labs as well. The next abstract I wanted to discuss is by Kevin Osterholt from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Abstract 12. Large-dose intentional ciprofloxacin and ingestion associated with false positive urine immunoassay for oxycodone and fentanyl. There's another list of substances to add to your differential for a false positive for fentanyl, which for me is currently only risperidone, but I'm sure there's others. Abstract 13. Don't make it a double. A 20-year review of supertherapeutic amlodipine ingestions while on chronic therapy. Here's one from the Georgia Poison Center group. This is a retrospective review of amlodipine therapeutic errors in patients on chronic therapy. Something we run into in the Poison Center world, where somebody is taking one of these medicines and they double up on their dose. And some of these medicines which can lower your blood pressure, we can run into problems. So who gets to stay home and who doesn't? They looked at 268 patients who ingested a known quantity of amlodipine and were followed to a known outcome. That's pretty important because sometimes poison centers will just assume you're going to be okay and check out if it's low enough risk. So none of those cases were included in the study. Only people we know did well. Of those who were treated in a healthcare facility and ingested 20 milligrams or less, only 50% experienced symptoms. And the symptoms were generally minor or moderate. Of those who experienced moderate effects, only 3, or 1% of all cases, were single-agent ingestions. And in all of those moderate effect cases with less than 20 milligrams, none of the effects could even be attributed to amlodipine. The long and short of this study, a double dose that is less than 20 milligrams is unlikely to need healthcare evaluation. Abstract 14. Evaluation of pediatric listex amphetamine exposures reported to a statewide poison control system. This one's from Justin Lewis, Abigail Takis, and Ruxin Ship from UC San Francisco and the California Poison Control System. They looked at Lizdex amphetamine exposures, essentially trying to answer when a kiddo gets into somebody's Vyvanse, when do they need to go to the hospital? They looked at only patients who weren't taking these medications regularly, so naive patients, and they evaluated the outcomes from those patients that were referred into the hospital. So all of these patients were actually observed in the emergency department for four hours. They also excluded anyone who got charcoal because you wouldn't be able to get that at home. They ended up with a total of 20 patients who were referred to the emergency department for Lizdex amphetamine exposure. 30% of the patients had no effects whatsoever, and the doses reported in the no-effect group ranged from 20 to 50 milligrams, or 0.7 to 2.7 mg per kilo. But I'll take that with a grain of salt. This is poison center data, and it's possible those children weren't exposed to anything at all, which could be why they developed no symptoms. 
The other 70% of patients did develop symptoms, and the lowest dose to cause symptoms in a stimulant-naive patient was 1.1 milligrams per kilo. It produced a mild tachycardia and hyperalertness, which resolved without intervention. So 1.1 milligram per kilo or less might be okay to home manage. Symptoms that do develop with that dose appear to be mild and resolve without intervention. So as long as there's good monitoring at home, not necessarily a reason to go to the emergency department. Though obviously that decision should be made in conjunction with a poison center. And 1.1 milligram per kilo is not a hard dose to reach given that many of these are in 20, 30, 40, or 60 milligram capsules. And children often weigh less than 20 kilos. Abstract 15. An assessment of the reliability of stated quantity in acute acetaminophen overdoses reported to a regional poison center. One of the final studies I wanted to talk about was a study by Nicholas Husick, Jimmy Leonard, and Angela Lamb in Maryland. This was a pretty bright study. An assessment of the reliability of stated quantity in acute acetaminophen overdoses reported to a regional poison center. They actually looked at patients presenting for acetaminophen overdose and did two-point kinetics to back-calculate the dose a patient would have taken based on the elimination half-life calculated from their two-point elimination rate constant. They looked at the stated dose of acetaminophen in acute overdose versus what it calculated to. And they found that in 8% of cases, the stated dose accurately predicted the level. Or in other words, 92% of patients were lying. <laughs> About 54% of patients had concentrations greater than what they should have been for the dose that they supplied. And about 38% had concentrations lower than what they should be for the dose that was reported. Now, I do think there's a lot of limitations in this. When we take drugs in overdose, there's the potential for continued absorption. And if you are eliminating faster than you're absorbing, you'll see a net decline in your concentration, but it'll appear as though your elimination rate is slower than it actually is because it's incorporating both continued absorption and elimination. This would create a falsely prolonged half-life, which would interfere with the dose you would back-calculate the patient to have taken. Additionally, in first-order elimination, you have exponential elimination of the drug, meaning you have the most elimination occurring right away when the most amount of drug is present. So if the two points you use to calculate your elimination rate constant are very near each other, you might create a linear slope that is way steeper or overestimates your elimination rate constant compared to taking two points that are very far from each other. I think this is probably confusing a lot of people, but the point is there's a lot of limitations in doing PK calculations of two-point kinetics, particularly in patients where you don't actually know what dose they took, so you can't back-calculate a lot of the variables that you can use for their kinetics, like volume and distribution. A number of variables have to be assumed, like the bioavailability and the volume and distribution, and there can be variability in the elimination rate constant that you get depending on which concentrations you use to calculate your variables, as well as some unique things that can occur when taking large quantities of drugs. Either way, I thought this was a really clever study, and if even a kernel of it is true, it supports what a lot of us already know. Patients are often incorrect or intentionally might mislead about the amount of drug they ingested. Well, I think that's going to do for the rest of our abstract review. Thanks for listening along with us today. And I hope we were able to provide some clinical context into the findings of these very important research. The toxicology community has an impressive output of meaningful research each year, and it can be difficult to stay on top of things. So I hope this high-yield review of some important abstracts helps you stay engaged and able to care for your patients. 
Huge thanks to my guests today, Dr. Comstock, Dr. McCabe, and Dr. Farrell. If you like what you've been listening to, please give us a review wherever you're listening to podcasts. It helps us reach other people interested in learning about toxicology. You can follow the show on Twitter at Lab Poison, myself at EM Poison PoisonPharmD, on Instagram at Tox underscore Talk, Facebook, The Poison Lab, or just go to our website, www.thepoisonlab.com. All of those resources will let you know when we're releasing new episodes about toxicology subjects with experts in the field of toxicology. Always free and always for you. Hope you can tune in next time. Hey, Toxo, can you play us out? The information on this show is for educational purposes only and should not be interpreted as medical advice or treatment recommendations. Contact your doctor for health questions or call your local poison center at 1-800-222-1222. The opinions expressed on this show do not represent those of our employers. This show is poorly written and shoddily produced by Ryan Feldman. Don't forget to give it a share with your nerdy friends. Cheerio, mate.